Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell. So excited to be starting off this season with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Chris. Marie. I want your hot take. All right. Dying. Thoughts? You scared of it? You embrace it? We're starting off nice and light this season. Jake, roll the tape. So dying, huh, Marie? Dying. Death. Death and dying. Or maybe the act of dying and then the afterlife. It's interesting. I think when I was younger, I was really afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. And like to the point of like, you know, going to a doctor and having them prescribe me medicine. Oh, seriously? Um, well, oh, yeah, well, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, yeah, I used to be really, I used to be really afraid of it. And then mm-hmm. uh, now... I sort of, I guess, I mean, I'm afraid of it. I, I welcome suppose. it. No, I'm yeah, no, I don't welcome it. I guess I'm afraid of it. I'm somewhat afraid of it. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. want to die, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of. Um, I had a, I had a professor of philosophy give us some context for me a little bit. She said, "You're not afraid of thinking about before you were born. So why should mm-hmm. you be afraid of thinking about when you're dead?" She's not kind of, wrong. She's, she's just not, not wrong. very supportive. No, she's, <laughs> no, no, she's not, not, not very warm, right? But yeah, no, I mean, it was kind of interesting. It was kind of interesting. At least the way true. I looked at it. How about you, Marie? Okay, well, if I'm totally honest, I do think that it is sort of that existential fear. Like if you start thinking about it too much, I go down a wormhole and I'm like, uh, not just a rabbit hole, but a wormhole on like, you know, on not being here right because there was your your philosophy professor was right there was a time that you were not before you were born you were not here and you were okay with that but I don't know I think it's just one of those things that you know the more you think about it the more sometimes it becomes sort of a burden in your head absolutely and and so listeners the reason we're talking about this today besides the fact that we just we really wanted to start off this season like you know, real easy, real easy listening for new listeners of the show. The reason we wanted to start here, we're going to begin the season here with a series on the attempt to stave off death. Cheat death. The attempts to cheat death in the modern world. And the, the only place to start with that is to figure out, okay, well, what do we think about death? What, what exactly is death? And... It's not such an easy thing to define, in fact. Now, the idea of there being sort of a fear around death, it's, I guess, fear of death almost is the wrong word for me. I understand it. Yeah, I don't. What is the nature of death? Right. I don't want to die horribly. 
You know what I mean? But that's like, I'm afraid of being run over by a steamroller, right? I'm afraid of Fox. Yeah. I'm afraid, you know, I'm afraid of getting cancer. I'm afraid of, uh, you know, getting eaten by a shark like that. You know, Mm -hmm. the act of dying itself seems you'd want to go easy if you could, you know, if you had to. If and you had a choice, but if and it was a smorgasbord or a buffet of death, you might steer away from the sharks. But the idea of sort of dying and being afraid of what comes after, I think that's a very that's something that's almost unique to. It's not unique to religion, but it is something very interesting, because, again, if you are an atheist or somebody who doesn't believe that, you know, you live and then you die and then there's nothing after, mm-hmm. then your fear is probably not death itself. Your fear is probably leaving people behind. It's causing suffering of other people. It's all these other things. And so yeah. Yeah. Schopenhauer uh, said, quote, the fear of death is the beginning of philosophy and the final cause of religion, end quote. It's quite interesting. Pretty much sums it up, right? I mean... I think that you have all sorts of uh, cultures, ancient and new, that try and respond to death and understanding death and how to prepare, you know, both the living and the actual dead for the afterlife. And then you have religion, which is more about what happens afterwards. Yeah, and a little bit about using what comes afterwards as sort of a, 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 I think in many cases, religion sort of tries to control people in, in your actions, right? You, you try to get people to act morally. And one of the easiest kind of ways to do that is to say, well, when you die, you'll get a big fat reward for being good. Or you're going to get <laughs> punished real bad <laughs> if you're bad. Not being good, yeah. Uh-huh. And so like, uh-huh. like you said, there's sort of a, car, you know, Death, understanding death, trying to come to terms with it, trying to explain it has been something that obviously humans have been doing since forever. Basically, probably since we were conscious you know, we yes. first saw a, a dead thing when we were hunting or, or just saw a loved one die. Yep. And so the ancient Egyptians thought that death was eternal. And so, again, to enjoy that eternity right, and the idea of an eternal death, that when you die, your body might die but your soul or your spirit, your consciousness survives. That's, you know, I think kind of intuitively for a lot of people, just because it's how we're raised and how uh, almost all of our history and stories and everything else kind of point that this is sort of an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it almost feels, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it almost feels natural to us, but the Egyptians, it's interesting. The Egyptians had kind of a weird twist on it where they thought, even though you, your soul might survive, the only way to enjoy eternity, the only way to enjoy death is if your body does survive. If your bo- your body has to remain intact in some way, which is why they did mummification. Yep. Which is, again, just kind of ties the body into the soul, right? This is the vessel that contains the soul. So we have to we have to keep it. We have to retain it as much as humanly possible. Ha <laughs> ha, pun intended. Just because, you know, this is even before, you know, um, advents in in, um, in medicine, right? To kind of, you know, talk about death and talk about, you know, what happens to the body when it's dying, all of that. I mean, they knew that 
uh, but they had to keep the body, like you were saying, intact with mummification and bring everything with it. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it seems it seems and we've talked about kind of the we've talked about the ideas that the the, the Egyptians had about sort of the soul and the ka and these these mm -hmm. different parts of the soul. We've had descriptions or we talked about those in the past as well. But I mean, you know, if if you have ever seen something decay, you know, you start off as being basically what you were when you were alive. And then over time, you become kind of a pile of dirt, you know, a, a pile of uh, a pile of you know, bones like minerals and kind of um, a pile of dirt. That's what I want. That's what I kind of want on my tombstone. I'm now kind of a pile of dirt. <laughs> you know, I mean, so it, again, it's sort of a um, so to think then that if you're going to survive, if your spirit will survive in some way, then it has to be uh, your body must remain intact in some way. You know, and this is also very similar again to sort of. We look at stories about, say, vampires or uh, mm -hmm. ghosts, hauntings, stuff like that. A lot of the times, the central focus of these hauntings or whatever are bodily remains that have stuck around. Yes. You know, yes. so a skull or a finger bone yes. or whatever, you know. Or did not have um, a proper, a proper right. religious yes. uh, burial, right? Yeah, it's quite, yeah. it's quite, quite an interesting sort of storyline there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it... it Obviously, ancient conceptions of death and what happens are, are quite interesting. I mean, you know, the Vikings thought uh, or, the, or the Vikings, I should say, sort of the, the Norse peoples, people under the Dane law. Right. They they had this conception. And just sort of Germanic peoples in general had this conception of death as they're sort of being, again, multiple, multiple places to go. And I think a lot of cultures had that same idea of multiple different sort of afterlives and one for people who were just and good and lived a good life. And then one place where people were punished because um, it didn't, I mean, think, I think kind of conceptually, it doesn't seem fair if you think, Oh, I was good my entire life. And then I die, you know, why should I then be forced to spend eternity with um, these losers? Sorry. Well, you know, but no, but really though, right? Yeah. Like if you, if you've lived a life, your entire life of, of goodness and everything else. And then, um, and then you you die and you, it turns mm -hmm. out that, you know, heaven or whatever, the afterlife is just the same as this. But like with ray tracing on or whatever, you know, that sucks. Right. That's that doesn't seem like much of a reward. So why should you be good in the first place? No. But the other thing I like about the afterlifes, too, is it's always it's always better, but it's always something that you can imagine and that you have some sort of grounding in now. Right. right absolutely. Yeah, of course. It's not like it's not like too foreign to you. But it's it's just the upgrade, right? It's the yeah, well, it's the supersized upgrade of, of where you are. It's funny, yeah. I mean, you know, again, so for the for the Vikings, for for uh, for these Germanic northern peoples, you know, the best the best place you could go to in heaven was Valhalla, um, the hall of you know Odin or Woden or or uh, the All Father, this kind of you know head uh, religious part of the pantheon, and that was basically a place where you got to uh, drink nonstop party all the time and just get into fights without ever actually suffering any wounds, you know? Right. So it sounds you know, it, awesome. It, and again, it's lie. kind of an interesting, it's an interesting thing because for most of us, when we think of heaven, I don't think we think of it as violent, right? <laughs> but for them, it was super duper violent. So yes. it is. Yeah. Like you're right, Marie. It's sort of a, it's a, it's a view of your culture. Right. And actually the yeah. Greeks with the Greeks, we see a similar thing where not like fighting or whatever, 
but the Greeks, especially during sort of the, the you know, the Pelop Peloponnesian War period, uh, where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, these 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 figures sort of lived around those time periods during kind of the golden age of Athens and, and philosophy, Athenian philosophy. You know, we have the story of the death of Socrates mm -hmm. and Socrates talks about how death shouldn't be feared. It's this release of the soul from the body, you know, and so he says he doesn't know what's coming to him. He doesn't know what his death will bring, but he says that the fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom and not real wisdom being a pretense of knowing the unknown. So in other words, you don't know what death is going to be like. So how can you be afraid of it? You, you can't be afraid of something if you don't know what it is. Yes. You know, this is a little bit before the fear of the unknown, right? Yeah. This is it's, kind of, the ex it's like the flip right. side. Why should you worry about it? You don't know what it's going to be like. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, you know, other, you know, again, the existentialists will come along and basically be like Socrates is full of shit, yeah. um, especially when it comes to that, that, you know, grief, death, understanding life. And especially so the existentialists, we we've never really gone super deep into them on the show. We've talked about them before, Kierkegaard and Camus and Sartre. And um, we've talked about like Nietzsche and stuff, but uh, Nietzsche not necessarily being a existentialist just, just, yeah. people are weird people are weird about the definitions whatever doesn't matter it's like saying you know is is Susie and the banshees goth or are they you know what what are you know what are they clearly they're goth they're people pop, fight pop goth people yeah. fight all right they're but commercialized so, goth oh pop goth marie oh, oh, oh we're gonna get pop goth. We're gonna get hate mail we're um, gonna get hate mail there's such no, a thing as pop goth we probably goths might not listen fight. to it but I mean, the fact that Susie and the Banshee was like played, had videos and was on the top 100 would mean she was a pop goth. Just I'm sorry, like the cure. I'm not saying they're not good. I'm just saying that they were popular. We're making some we're making some big, bold claims in this episode right now. I know. No, I agree. The cure. Eh, cure is meh. Anyways, the um. now we're going to get the hate mail. <laughs> now we're going to get the hate mail. <laughs> so the existentialists, what they were really responding to and what the reason people get lumped into sort of existentialist mm -hmm. philosophy is sort of a term. Even people who came before, like Kierkegaard and uh, like Nietzsche and stuff, the, the reason they get kind of viewed in that, in that lens is mm -hmm. their philosophy was trying to trying to make sense of life, existence in some cases, existence where you did not know what was happening when you died, or maybe you just thought there was no God. And so there, there was nothing afterwards or, right. right. It's sort of this trying to understand existence on its own terms without having to toy, without having to kind of point towards there is a God. So I'm, I'm doing this. I'm living like this because I'll get rewarded later. Right. Sort of the question becomes, well, why is there a reason to be good? Is there a reason to be just? Is there a reason to live a certain way? Right. If there is no afterlife to reward you or punish you. Yeah. And if we're and all just going to die, then it's sort of pointless. Right. And so and, and so some of them will have different views on that. Right. But, you know, probably the most religious. I mean, I don't think probably the most religious of the people who are considered existentialist is, is Soren Kierkegaard, mm -hmm. who talked about. The, the thing about mortality, the thing about death that we experience in life is, is despair. Yeah. 
It's mm-hmm. this idea that we want to have something after. We want to have forever. We want things to stay sort of the same. Mm-hmm. But obviously that doesn't happen. And so Kierkegaard has this concept of the night of infinite resignation and this idea of surrender. Yeah, that mm-hmm. the only way to sort of get over that fear is to just accept almost that there must be something or that it is unknowable, that it, right? So do you, you mm-hmm. surrender that control in a way. Yes. And Kierkegaard's philosophy is extremely interesting and we can, yeah. we can get deep into it. Yes, and my favorite Cure album was The Night of Infinite Surrender. Yeah, yeah, so good. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. But yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting idea. And so he specifically talks about the leap of faith. Yeah? Yes. And this idea of you have to make the decision by, you, you have to believe, you have to be faithful for the leap to be genuine. And it is that sort of surrender, right? Is this idea of, I think I gave, I gave an example once. I think it was pretty, I think it was taken pretty badly in philosophy class, but Sweet. I think I gave the example <laughs> of throwing away a hat and expecting with all of your might that the hat will return to you. Yeah. So you throw mm-hmm. something into the ocean and you're like, that's going to come back to me right away. God's going to bring that back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. almost that, like if you, that is faith, yeah, yes. that is true belief. Yes. So yes, and you yes, can argue that that is delusional belief, or <laughs> not, but I mean, like, well, in your hat, like in your hat uh, analogy. I mean, I think yeah, if it that it is the faith is what releases you from the despair, right? Because it's the faith of like I don't know what's what's I don't know what the after is. I just have to have faith in not knowing. Right? Yeah. You you almost have to, you not not even in not knowing almost so much as it is. Yeah, I mean I get yeah, no, accepting that's, the fact that I yes, don't know is what's yes. going to release me from this despair. Right? Yes. And I think that that is not that's not popular. <laughs> I mean, that's not something that people naturally turn to right and when in talking about like fear of fear of death and denying death and and trying to stave off or cheat death like it's more like we cannot come to that uh we can't come to that realization or that rationalization for whatever reason right and so it's like that i think is is you know i you can look at like more modern you know i think more modern acceptance of death with, you know, it being shown more, it being um, not shown more, but there's more, I feel like there's more, I hate to say death positive, but, you know, you have more examples of people, more examples of people that go into death-oriented fields, like morticians that are now on TikTok and Insta and writing books and kind of bringing it into more of a... um, I don't know, more of a like a a, a a culturally relevant or socially relevant topic that's not so that doesn't you know that doesn't shut people down. Well, you you take it you take out the taboo, you know, yes. you take out the the kind of weirdness, the ickiness of it, and the yes. the uncomfortableness of it. And it's funny a lot, you know, the probably the next sort of so so 
Hmm. I think it, you you almost can look at death in sort of four different ways that we've, we've talked about uh, or we, we, are, we are going to talk about here. Yeah. The first one is this idea of death as a release into heaven and hell and whatever, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, the release into another life. That's one way of looking at yes. it. The second way of looking at it is from the purely kind of current existence standpoint, which is you don't know if you're going to live or die. So all you can do is sort of give in to the idea that you mm-hmm. don't know. And mm-hmm. so you can, all you can do is, is yeah, kind of surrender the thought of control on that, right? You have no control mm-hmm. over it. So sort of live, right? Yes. Just, just sort of live. But Kierkegaard would say that, that that can kind of come from religious, that, that has a place in religious life. Yes. That idea of, of kind of giving in. And the example he gives often of this sort of giving in is the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is quite uh, just a very, very fascinating look. And, and I, I completely suggest listeners read Kierkegaard. It's very good, very just just fascinating stuff. Actually, one of my favorite quotes on this comes from him. So Kierkegaard says the title of his book is called Fear and Trembling. Mm. And a quote, if there were no eternal consciousness in a man, if at the bottom of everything there was only a wild ferment, a power that twisting in dark passions produced everything great or inconsequential, if an unfathomable, insatiable emptiness lay hid beneath everything, what would life be but despair? Dang. So for Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. there there has to be something beyond, right? For sort of life to make sense almost. Well, to them, well, I mean, and you can almost argue that because humans produce what he would consider sort of this depth of thought and this this complexity that that didn't that didn't just come from anywhere that was something beyond our yeah. our mortal existence, right? Yeah, there has to be more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I would almost argue it's almost the same argument as Buddhism in some ways, except for your human oh. form is suffering, right? So you are put into this human form that is binding you to suffering, right? And it's binding you, yes, you, you could create amazing things, but really the goal is to be able to release yourself from the suffering through, you know, death and reincarnation. Yeah, well, so so it's interesting, right? So I think that's definitely part of sort of the Kierkegaardian almost worldview, you know? Yeah, I think yes. that's absolutely true. So yeah. you have, so again, so we have so far, we've talked about two of them so far. The first one is be good, be a good boy, you'll get a good reward. The second one is life is suffering, but there must be something later. There must be something more. Mm-hmm. And the only way to live without constantly being in fear of death is to kind of just accept and believe that there is something later coming. doesn't yes. matter what it is, but there must be more. The second way of looking at this, I think, is probably best espoused by noted Nazi Martin Heidegger, who says that, who says that uh, the fact of death is a reason to live your life in sort of the most YOLO way possible. Yes, we are right? surrounded by images of death, right? We are like always many, reminded yeah. that we are going to die. Like many of Heidegger's arguments, he yes. is making the monster energy drink of arguments on uh, on death, Yes, right? Where he says, our decisions, our life is all that we have. 
And so if at the end of your life, you're going to die, then everything you do is so important. Right. Yep. It is so important. It's so much more important than if it was all just going to get kind of totted up at the end and people were going to see, oh, well, were you good or bad? And so he says, you know, being present is grounded in this turning towards death, living a life in the moment yes. um, is only possible in the face of uh, the fear of death. Yes. And that's sort of where you're starting to see, you know, Nietzsche, right? Coming yeah, around absolutely. as well. This is this is you are living in the moment. Your eternal recurrence would choose the same thing you're choosing now. Yeah. And so that's kind of our third, it's kind of our third version here of third, our third taste of the way you can experience death, which is again, um, our third amuse bouche, our third, our on third the, uh, amuse bouche, right? Almost, almost the memento mori, like you say here, Marie, in the notes, exactly, right? This, yes. this idea of someday you're going to be dirt. You're going to be a pile of dirt, man. <laughs> right? so you yeah. better, you better get on it now because you yeah. don't have, and you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. So make, make the most of what you have now. Yeah. Right. And then yes. my favorite of these, uh-huh. Albert Camus. Oh, yeah. Oh. Who basically takes a, uh, I really, this is my favorite one. This, honestly, Marie, it's funny. When when I was in college, mm-hmm. I was really, really, like, really um, not obsessed, but, like, fearful. Just fearful about, am I making the right decisions? Am I fucking up my life? Am I, you know, mm-hmm. all, all these things mm-hmm. you hit, that hit when you're finally off in the world on your own and everything else, whatever. Mm-hmm. And reading mm-hmm. Camus made me feel better. You know what I mean? Because because his arguments, <laughs> you know, hit hit me really affect, you know. Right. So he he says right. you sitting there smoking your your cloves. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Drinking my absinthe. You yeah. You know, you know, not this. So Sorry. Camus Camus work is sort of a response to the pointlessness of World War One. And the horror that comes from seeing World War One happen and then shit just going back exactly the same it was. Right. It it didn't Mm -hmm. it didn't fix anything. Right. And in fact, it might have just made things worse. And this idea of people just sort of throwing young men at uh, a a chopping block. Right. For no reason. Right. It seemed pointless. It was pointless. How could God exist in a world so pointless? And so Camus and a lot of the existentialists were responding to nihilism, this idea of, well, nothing matters. So who gives a shit? (laughs) What Camus said was that's really stupid right that mm-hmm. that it's not it's not who gives a shit it's that it's it's almost absurd to care right mm-hmm. all you can do is enjoy the ride yes yes right so why worry about how you're gonna die or if you're gonna die yeah you're gonna die right who knows what comes afterwards enjoy life now right yes. live a life in your live life in a way that you want to live it, live life in a way that you will be proud of your life at the end of your life. Even if that means being a shithead. Right? Yeah, well, and it's, it is, it is sort of this absurdity, right? That your life is absurd. Things that are going to happen to you are absurd. The idea of, of being concerned about dying or death is absurd. So really it's, there's a joy in the pointlessness of it. Yeah, and Marie, I think you actually you wrote you wrote something really beautiful here. So you said I probably copied it from somewhere. So we'll credit. We'll give you credit in the show notes. You said for Camus, grief is a state of being overcome by the pointlessness of it all. Why love if love ends in such pain? Why build great projects when all will be dust? With grief comes an awareness of the bitter finality of everything, and it comes with an angry, screaming frustration. Why are we here at all? 
Camus' suggestion is a kind of macabre revelry, gallows humor perhaps, that says we should enjoy the ride for the meaningless roller coaster it is. We must imagine ourselves happy. Honestly, I think that's fucking true. <laughs> like, I 100% think that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that Camus has this awareness, this constant awareness that is fatiguing. Like, I think, you know, I can come to this realization when pushed, but I don't use it on a daily basis. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? If you're constantly mm. thinking like this, then you're really not in a safe operating system in your well, head, see that, right? It, like, yeah, no, and that, it doesn't see, and that's get the thing. you engaging. It doesn't get you like if you're if you're basically, you know imagining yourself happy on this meaningless roller coaster you're not going to have milk in your fridge just saying <laughs> right well right? so is that dig at me marie um no so that's that's well so that's the interesting thing <laughs> i think my is own that fridge but yeah that's the thing i think that's so fascinating here is it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be pointless things can be absurd and seemingly meaningless and everything else but you give them meaning but they have no yeah. wider meaning. Yeah. They, yeah. You know, there's no there's no wider reason for any of this stuff to be happening. But you exist right now. And there are people you love that exist now. And so all you can do is live a life of the meaning you've created for yourself. That's the way I view it. Yeah. And it's sort of an amalgam of of different stuff. Right. Because you have some you have some Nietzsche in there. Right. Like I am self-defining my own life. Yes. And my I am choosing without social constraint, hypothetically, or cultural bias, my own reality and my own who I am in self-definition. And yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's sort of a it's sort of a blend, I think. Yeah. Doesn't make you great at parties. Does not make you really, you're sitting there in the corner smoking your French cigarettes going, you, you bourgeois fools, dance, dance. Little dance, you fools. Dance. Why dance, dance when we will all be bacon one day? We, we will all, right. all be dust. And with that, Jake, take us to the break. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. 
Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And we're back. All right, so lots of fills. Obviously, I mean, we could do an entire series, whole year-long series on the philosophy of death and what it means and everything else. You're not going to get the answers from us. Those are four kind of general ideas. There are other ways of thinking about dying, right? I mean, we mentioned Buddhism. One idea around death is also reincarnation. Yes. You come back. And just do it all over you know, again. Maybe this isn't all we have. And, yeah. you know, you, you learn from your mistakes. You're trying to be you're almost trying to refine yourself to be the best you can be. And an so idea finally also released. Yes. An idea also held cycle. by the alchemists. Right. And yeah. held by many occult practices, in fact. Yeah. So there's lots of ways to look at this. But it's still like it's still there's something after. Right. You're yes, going to come back into as something else and you're going to go through it again just to try and break the break the um cycle yeah it's sort of uh it's sort of the opposite almost of the be a good boy you'll get good things it's be a good boy and things will keep sucking but you better keep being good because eventually good (laughs) things the other way of looking at death though is from a purely scientific point of view yeah yeah so number one how do we process death in the world right how do we process death how do those left behind process death and what does it mean to die? Yeah, we are, we are really upbeat. We are really We're going so upbeat. So, Marie, you have some stuff here by uh, on death and dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Do you want to give us, give us some details so here? Kubler-Ross came up in 1969 with probably the most commonly known and referenced philosophy, or not even philosophy, but stages of grief, right? It's almost and a taxonomy. It's like it, a taxonomy of grief in a, it in is. a process. I was gonna say, yeah. I was going to say it was an anagram, but I don't think it actually... <laughs> I wanted da- to be like yeah, an Dabda, anagram. Yeah, Dabda is the anagram, Dabda which just model. seems... Right, and so she, she came up with this when she was working on a book on death and dying, and she was actually working on the various stages of emotions that patient, a critically ill, diagnosed with a terminal illness, patient goes through. Right. When they uh, when they realize I am going to die, what are the what are the sort of the the cycles or the, the emotions that they'll feel? And you there won't be any surprise because I think it's almost it's almost like a trope now. It's denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. So somehow this kind of also got flipped to survivors. Right. So mm-hmm. this is now a survival mechanism and the emotions that people go through that are that are common, you know, that are still I kind of, you know, that are still kind of used again as a trope still to this day, but originally they were meant for people that were critically ill. The other thing too is like Kubler-Ross developed this model after interviewing individuals. So, mm-hmm. it was a handful of patients that she attempted to kind of put this together when she was a resident in New York. However, it's 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 one of those things that it hasn't really it hasn't ever really been challenged. Mm-hmm. It's sort <laughs> you know, of a. It's not a yeah. double blind. You know, you don't have a double blind peer study on this. This came out, um, you know, 1969. I think it was a, at a time when you would see a lot of these, a lot of these behavioral modification 
uh, books or, you know, again, sort of this, I don't want to say new agey, but like explaining to you what's happening in your life. And this is, you feel this way because coming out. And I would put the DABDA model in, in that bucket. Not that you don't have these experiences, but I would say that you, not everyone experiences death, a critical, like a terminal illness the same way, or survivors of someone who have gone through that loss don't have that same, you know, that same sort of progression as well. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, well, it's interesting too, because the reason she decided to study uh, people who were going through these terminal illnesses Mm -hmm. was that she just saw when she was doing her own work, how little attention was paid to those sorts of patients. Which is terrible. Which is terrible. But I mean, you can imagine, right? If if medicine mm-hmm. is built around the idea of keeping people alive, if someone is definitely going, I mean, you're all going to die, but, you know, if you know that you are uh, terminally ill, your, mm-hmm. your death is imminent, mm-hmm. then medicine really kind of has almost nothing left for you. Right? They can give you medicine to make you feel better, to, to heal your, you know, symptoms initially or just alleviate some symptoms like pain. But ultimately, there's not a lot doctors can do for you, right? Well, and yeah, so- and I think especially at this time, like I, I do think within the within the last, I want to say the last 20 plus years, that's changed. You know, you have more, you have more of how do you comfort and aid the death, the, the well, hosp- you know, yeah, the dying. Hospice, hospice, hospice has become a more... I mean, again, too, you got to remember that when this came out in 1969, we weren't living tremendously long. And those who did were not, you know, it's not like today where you can you can be ill. You know, you're given a terminal illness diagnosis and there's still you still have years potentially, you know, so it's a little bit different. But it, it's it's fascinating. And like you said, it's not really something that's been. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how well accepted it is really within the medical community, how much evidence there is for it, you know, for what, for the, for, for the, the DABDA, DABDA model. Yeah, DABDA exactly. Model. Well, and I think what's especially interesting about it is it, it went from being something that was applied to a terminally ill person to the survivor of right, a terminally exactly. ill person. Right. So yes. it's sort of like, and I don't think, but none of her studies were on that on the survivor right. they were all on so it's sort of like again like i don't know like i i can imagine that if you were you know if you were a survivor of this you might be like i don't feel i don't feel angry i i've, I've skipped all the way to acceptance what's wrong with me but it's again like i think that it's sort of an oversimplification but what i do like about it is it at least it's trying to give some type of emotional response to the idea of death that we can relate to. Absolutely. It's in a relatively, even though it was 1969, in a relatively recent sense. Well, I think it's why I think it's also why it's become it's become so commonplace, really, like you said, Marie, is it, it is a framework. It is an easy framework. And so even if not everyone goes through these stages, it's at least a, a starting off point, a jumping off point for for conversation. Right. In a, in a conversation you don't want to have with most people. Yeah. And but and also it's like as soon as it becomes a trope and they're using it on Rick yeah. and Morty, you know, it's like, do you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> then it's just sort of ubiquitous. There's just nothing like again, like it's it's 
but it's also never been like I the thing that kind of blew my mind is like is finding out sort of the background story on it it really hasn't uh it wasn't meant for that and it hasn't really been like widely challenged yeah no it's fascinating I wonder if you're if you're a doctor or somebody who studies this let let us know please do what do you think about the what do you think about the idea so we, we we sort of have some some studies and ideas around kind of what it does to uh, people who know they're going to die to, mm-hmm. you know, people who maybe are survivors, maybe misplaced, you know, uh, however that is. But that still doesn't really answer the question of death or what is death itself. And it's it's actually like I think a lot of us want to think that the definition of death is really easy scientifically, but it is not. It is really, really not. So how do we define when someone is dead? Yeah. So question we've if we think first off, this always blows my mind. Parrot is no more. So you knew you knew (laughs) we had to get like one dead parrot joke in there. And that's it. That's the only Monty Python dead parrot joke. If it ceased to be sorry. Also, it's it's, honestly, it's they're not that like many times with Bonnie Python. They're not that far off. They're not that far off. (laughs) We used to think that the that you were dead when you stopped breathing. Right. If you were no longer able to breathe on your own, you were dead. Yes. But we now know that that is not true at all. No. Right. Mm-mm. People are able to go onto iron, you know, onto onto mechanical lungs that can breathe for them. Yeah. Um, it cannot be cessation of breathing. That's why they had all those bells in the coffins. Yes, because they kept getting it wrong. <laughs> uh, okay, so the next thing we moved to was okay. Well, if it's not stopping breathing, mm-hmm. it's the heartbeat. If your heartbeat stops, but that all went out the window with the advance of CPR. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you were able to bring somebody back from quote unquote death just with some, some simple, really well administered yeah. chest presses. Yeah. Yeah. And heart surgery where they actually physically stop the heart exactly. to operate on it. So heartbeat stopping, that also can't be it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what about stopping brain activity? Well, there's multiple different definitions of that as well. Uh. If you're, if you're the kind of the front of your brain stops working, but your brain stem is still intact, you are technically still alive. You can perform biological functions. You will breathe. Your heart is beating. You might respond. Your pupils will dilate and et cetera. But your memory, your personality is gone. Mm-hmm. Is that person dead? Are they alive? That's a really hard question. That's a coin toss right there. And it gets even it gets even weirder when we start talking about even more kind of deeper sort of questions there, right? Mm-hmm. If there's just a chance that they're alive someplace in there, mm-hmm. can we ever consider them dead? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it is it total brain death? Is total brain death the only way that we can consider someone dead? Um, will that change as medical science progresses and potentially we get to the point where we can do things like, I mean, I don't know, right? All yeah. Science fiction stuff almost, right? It's it's a really hard, hard question. And actually, it, it goes to an even harder question. 
when the hell is something alive? Oh, God. <laughs> right? <laughs> forget forget when it's dead. Right? Good night, everybody. You know, You've what, been great. What about when it, What about when something is alive, right? Is something alive if it's conscious? Well, what about plants, right? Plants are clearly alive. They're, they're not con- conscious, but they're, they're alive. Conscious, but they, yeah, they turn to the sun. They need water to survive. Yeah, or most is of it, them do, yeah. Is it memory? Is it mm. biological function? Right, I mean, if it's, if it's memory... No, you know, I can't remember when I was a baby, right? Was I alive when I was a baby? I must have been. I'm alive now. So there's not like I was alive, then dead, then alive. Right. Right. So God, I hope I hope not. Yeah. Can't no, be memory. Dear. Can't be. It memory. can't be biological functions. Right. Because, again, can't, can't um, be personality because personality can't be personality. Is, yeah, all right. right. What about things like viruses oh, or single cells? Yeah, or simple animals. An earthworm. Is an earthworm alive? Probably not in the same way we think of humans as alive, but still it's alive. It does stuff, mm-hmm. right? It does stuff. Um, yeah. So these are not easy questions. And even scientifically, forget philosophically or morally or, or religiously, just scientifically. Biologically, it's not, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not as cut and dry as being like, after this point, this thing's dead, or after this point, this thing's alive, or in the middle, it's alive, but at the other end, it's not. It's really hard. It seems like maybe the easiest explanation for death, the only one we can really have, is the irreversibility of it. If something mm-hmm. is altered irreversibly in such a way, that it is no longer possible for it to support or be supported in its own cellular functions, then it's dead. Now, that's still not the best explanation. I'm sure there's people driving. People have just, you know, wrenched their cards to the side of the road to be like, but Chris, you just said that can't be the definition, you son of a bitch. It's still tricky. It's not easy, all right? What about, okay, what about, it's just this devil's argument here. Um, what about when they, um, when they start to decay? Right? You can because decay then... when you're alive, Marie. But I mean, when right? you... If you left your hand, uh, if you just didn't move stop. your hand for a month, your okay. hand would okay, start okay, to okay. decay. What about rigor mortis? Maybe sort of, right? But that's the thing. That seems like it's too far gone, right? If you got if you got a dead body and you're like, oh, now it's got rigor mortis, now it's dead, right? That's probably too far, right? That's the that's the thing here. You you know, that's uh-huh. I think that's kind of the funny part of this is that nobody wants to be too far off the mark on either end. Right. Right. You, you're trying to you're trying to almost split the atom between what was what is alive and then what is dead. Yeah. And I mean Again, it almost seems like, you know, there's that famous quote about um, pornography, right? Yeah. I don't, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, right? It kind right. of the same way here. I can't really define death, but I know death when I see it. Right. Currently, scientifically, there's multiple definitions of death that even medical, uh, that even medicine uses, right? Mm-hmm. There's circulatory death or CDD. Mm-hmm. That is when your your heart stops, you're, you're no longer breathing, right? Um, and you're starting to basically die. Mm-hmm. You're starting to lead mm-hmm. to full death. Mm-hmm. And full death is called brain death. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we almost good think of death. band name, brain death. Brain death is such a good, I think Ooh, brain, brain death might. Brain for Krampus, brain death. Brain, brain death, I think, is actually already a band. But, Seriously? Oh, um, I think so. But anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out on Spotify okay. after we're done hey, recording. Hey, brain death, call us. 
So, it, but now, so now we start to think of death as almost a continuum. And we actually do the same thing with life, right? Just like we said before, clearly, I think to all of us, we would accept a, um, a single celled organism is alive, but less alive almost, or less alive is maybe the wrong word, morally important. Like, I don't know really what you'd call it, but I think it has, clearly less sentient. Yes, exactly. We have we have different definitions for we have different definitions for the scale, but clearly there is a difference between a human and a single celled organism right on that continuum of life in some way. Yes. The same thing is true today. We think of with death. There is almost a continuum where um, you can be the personality can be gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the Mm -hmm. concept almost of the Mm -hmm. person can be gone, but the body can still be alive and parts of the body can be dead while other parts still function. So it's a very interesting thing. The hardest definition of death medically is what's called total brain death, Uh which is there's absolutely no electrical activity occurring at all. Mm. Right. So no electrical Mm -hmm. activity. Um, mm-hmm. No breathing, no, none of those things, none of those, right. none of those problems. Right. You know? Right. So it's 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 a really fascinating thing. And obviously nobody, nobody wants their loved ones to die. Nobody wants to die. But as we've gotten better at medicine and keeping people alive longer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. throughout sort of the last hundred to one hundred and fifty years. There have been individuals and groups trying to cheat death completely. And that is what we're going to get into next episode. Sweet. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm -hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. 
they were able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. <laughs> 